Hello, this is the Shout for Libraries podcast brought to you by CGSR 88.5 FM, coming to you upon a very cold Treaty 6 territory in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. I'm your host, Jeremy Wilson. On the program today, Paula is interviewing Jen the Feisty Librarian, who discusses her experience as something of a local internet celebrity librarian in the Edmonton area. After that, Paula, Dan, Alessia, and I discuss our year-end book and podcast recommendations and librarianship and general book-related topics. Without further ado, here is Jen and Paula. So Jen, what led you to a career as a library? What, what, what attracted you about the profession? I was one of those people that came to librarianship accidentally. Um, and I say that because I was planning to become a teacher, probably either elementary or junior high. Um, and I was in that sort of period. Uh, I was in Vancouver, needed to do some volunteering before I could apply for the education program. And one of the places that I happened to volunteer was at a public library in Vancouver. And uh, during that summer where I was helping kids with their reading and doing activities, I'd asked the coordinator if she could uh, be a reference for my application to the education program. And she said, oh, sure, of course, but Jen, you don't wanna be a teacher. And I said, I don't? She's like, no, you wanna be a librarian. Oh yeah, actually I kind of do, that sounds great. And so I talked to her about her role and what sort of work she'd done. Um, And so then the following year I did apply, instead of applying to the education program, I applied to the Masters of Library Science at uh, University of British Columbia. And how long has it been for you now as a librarian? Going on about 17 years, which feels like a long time. I graduated from the program in 2005 um, and my there weren't a lot of full-time positions in Vancouver. So my first stop um, after library school was Red Deer. I uh, worked at the public library there for about five years. Um, and then I've been in Edmonton since 2010. So I've been in Edmonton for about 12 years now. And what are some of your favorite parts of being a librarian? Gosh, I think I just love all the different groups of people that I encounter, uh, work with and hear their stories. So I've worked with children, on uh, teens, uh, adults, seniors, newcomers to Canada, adults with disabilities. And from every one of those groups, um, it's just such a different experience, but it's so rich in terms of the types of stories you hear from people, uh, the ways that you can support people, support caregivers, their families, um, teachers. So it just sort of feels like you're connected When you're in public libraries, it feels like you're sort of connected with the whole community surrounding that that library and just the sort of little ways and some bigger ways in which you can make a difference and and feel like you're part of their lives, maybe not everyday lives, but the way that that you can help out, support them and and, uh, encourage them to have fun at the library too, of course. Now you're on Twitter and you have a huge following on Twitter. I'm just looking at a Twitter right now, and you have over 20,000 followers. So t- tell me a little bit about that. Like what got you onto Twitter and, and what do you uh, attribute to your your huge audience? It's a bit ridiculous, isn't it? That I have 20,000 followers that want to listen to my nonsense. 20.5,000. sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, I joined Twitter um, in the relatively early days, 2009. Um, that feels like a lifetime ago. And 
I would say that for the first few years, I didn't, I didn't feel that connected to it. Twitter was mostly a place of, um, there was some sort of community things happening, but it seemed mostly an opportunity to interact with celebrities when I first joined, which was fun, but also not, maybe not that meaningful. Um, and over the years, I've, I've had a relatively small following. I think it wasn't until about 2019 or 2020 um, that I picked up a bit of momentum. Uh, and honestly, I, I, I think it was just, um, I was laid off for a little bit in 2020 and I had a lot of free time. I was on Twitter a lot. And so I think just being there a lot, commenting a lot, along with a few posts that um, didn't necessarily go viral, but um, in August of 2020, I had spent the last six months making a, a dress covered with buttons. Um, and my husband, Jeff, took photos of me. We posted them there. Um, and overnight, it got the attention of a couple local news networks, uh, as well as people around the world. People in Germany apparently really loved the button dress. Uh, don't know why. <laughs> so I think it's both a combination of spending a lot of my free time on that particular website, but I am pretty vocal. Uh, I do have some big opinions, uh, whether it's about politics, climate, the you know community surrounding us. Um, so I think just a kind of a combination of being a little bit vocal um, and also just being a bit of a weirdo. I, I proudly identify as a weirdo. Ever, ever since I was a teenager, I've always kind of followed the beat of my own drum in terms of clothing and style and all of that. So I think that's one of those things that people either connect to and, and really relate to it, or they just think you're weird and they don't like you. So it can kind of go either way. <laughs> you mentioned the button dress. Something else that you're quite known for is it seems like every day when you start your tweeting, you mention something about oatmeal, something about getting up in the morning, doing some kind of activity, and then you always conclude it with and makes oatmeal. So where did that come from? So that also started, um, I, I call those my local woman tweets. And that also started in, I believe, 2020. Uh, and I was actually kind of inspired by, there's a, a guy also on local Twitter called Jeff Noctigal, who, who runs a, a bakery with his wife in, Strath, in Old Strathcona. And for a number of months, he had done these tweets that were, I start my day with a black coffee and a ginger cookie, um, and then some commentary about life. I just sort of picked up on that convention a little bit, um, along with the fact that the couple news articles that I had been in surrounding the button dress, media outlets love to have that sort of like, local man kills an alligator with his bare hands, local woman saves the cat from a tree. And that's just sort of how they, they do their headlines. Um, and because I'd been called a local dressmaker a couple of times, I just sort of jokingly started calling myself local woman. Uh, and so um, I had been making oatmeal for a while and just jokingly bragging about it on Twitter. Um, so basically the, the convention was local woman wakes up uh, and then there would be a line about smashes the patriarchy, uh, screams into the void, comes up with a vaccine for conservatism, um, any number of things that I would do. And then it would end with makes oatmeal. And I was honestly just doing it for myself because I thought it was funny but I quickly started to realize that, that people were really connecting with that. And I think it's sort of the consistency on Twitter when you can have, you know, you'll notice viral tweets follow a certain template. A lot of times they start in the same sort of literary convention or there's something to do with lack of punctuation or 
um, emojis used. And so I think just that consistency connects with people on Twitter. And so even though it started off as a joke, I just kind of went and ran with it. And um, shortly after that, I worked with a local artist to design some uh, illustrations and graphics that that uh, I started a small Redbubble shop, um, which is print on demand. So I had a few different um, sayings on there. Local woman was one of them. There was another one that was a little bit more uh, rude. Um, and it's just sort of grown from there. But what's funny is that when I don't eat oatmeal, on days that I don't eat oatmeal, I genuinely have people comment, send me a message, send me a DM, very concerned. Why did you not have oatmeal today? And it's, again, it started off kind of like a joke, but now people um, have really been worried. And for the last three weeks, I've had COVID. Um, and for a couple of those weeks, I was just not in the mood to eat at all. Um, and so I wasn't eating oatmeal and I genuinely had people expressing their concern. And when I did come back to the oatmeal, they celebrated. <gasps> You're back to oatmeal. You must be feeling better. This is great. Can you cancel this person and change the world and, you know, end climate change? And, oh, sure. Yep, I can do that. No problem. <laughs> so what started as a joke has kind of become, uh, and this is something that I heard a psychologist on the Sunday Magazine on CBC talk about. He talked about, um, I think he used the term islands of consistency in a sea of change or something like that. And I just remarked on the fact that oatmeal, I believe, has kind of become like a constant in this pandemic world of, of chaos that we've been living in for the last few years. And as silly as it is, having oatmeal be that constant that when people wake up, they see what local woman is doing and then eating oatmeal is just a little reminder to them that everything might be crazy in the world, but there's still oatmeal. Um, and so it, 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 feels, it feels odd to say that, but I think that the oatmeal has provided some stability to people kind of in the local community, but, but beyond because they have followers all over the world. So, yeah. <laughs> you were mentioning people contacting you because they were concerned when, when you weren't tweeting about oatmeal, but as a, as a woman who's very active on, on Twitter, have you ever faced any backlash for your, for your views and for your comments? And if so, how have you dealt with that? Yeah. Um, I've had, I've had a few, um, a few sort of scary moments. Um, some of them have been kind of throwaway threats. Uh, if I tweet about, it always tends to be if you tweet about someone rich and famous, like Bezos or Musk, and there's all these, these fanboys that seem to just sort of, I will die for Elon Musk. And you're like, why? He won't give anything to you in return. Um, so if I make any sort of negative commentary um, about one of those individuals, it is actually quite common that I'll get someone saying something like, oh, I hope you die in a plane crash or a car crash, you know, because of saying these things. And it's just like, that's a, that's a leap. Like I just said, I don't like this rich and famous person and you're now wishing death upon me. Um, so I have had certainly some negative comments and threats surrounding rich and famous individuals, any sort of negative commentary I might make on hockey 
because hockey is such a beloved sport in Canada. And the minute you say anything negative about it, you are the enemy. And also anytime I've kind of poked the beast of far right conservative communities and trolls. And in that situation, it's always sort of hard to know if the people who are responding, what percentage of them are real, what are trolls, what are bots. Um, but the end result doesn't really matter if they're um, insulting you, if they're threatening you. So, I mean, the way I've dealt with it is I, I block regularly and often. I have certainly filed reports on certain individuals generally receiving the notification back that there was no violation of Twitter conduct and safety. Oh, okay. Threatening to kill me is not a, not a violation of the Twitter policy. Okay, cool. Yep. Well, knowing that, that as a white woman, I do have a privilege that um, is not afforded to, to other people. Um, and that I know that threats uh, just increase twofold. If you're a person of color, if you're a queer person, um, so I know that even though I have faced some of that, uh, I've still kind of been lucky uh, because I do have that privilege, privilege surrounding being a white woman on the internet. Do you find that there are any connections between your social media life and your library life? A little bit. Um, in the last year or two, it, it, I found that there was quite a separation between the two up until about 2020 or 2021. But I have... I've now started having people in town um, say hi to me on the street because they recognize me. Hey, local woman, how's your oatmeal this morning? Or uh, we were in the grocery store and someone asked my husband and I how our dog was doing. And we had a little bit of a moment of, I'm sorry, who are you? <laughs> said, hey, it's Dolly's parents. How's Dolly doing? Uh, which was a bit of a disconnect. So I've certainly had a bit more, um, I've started having a bit more recognition in and around Edmonton, but not just Edmonton. Uh, we were in Calgary um, in July for the Calgary Folk Festival. And um, I had a lot of people there uh, come up to me and recognize me. And um, my husband was joking that, um, so you're not just a local woman anymore because you've made it to this other city. And um, the Jody Gondek, the mayor of Calgary sent me a message. Oh, I see you at Folk Fest. We should meet up and have a drink. And, and so of course my husband was making fun of me for, oh yeah, okay, the mayor of Calgary slid into your DMs. Yeah, that's where we're at now. I will say that about like 75 to 80% of it is just fun and great. And I love having people um, come up to me and say hi. There's certainly a bit of a negative element there in terms of, okay, people might know where we live. Um, they might know where I work. So depending on the type of negative attention that you get, um, there is always that slight worry that, okay, I'm, I'm now a bit more of a public person. And if people wanted to find me, they could. But I try not to dwell on that. Because that has generally not been not been a huge, huge concern yet. <laughs> Hopefully, it will stay that way. Are you active on any other social media platforms other than Twitter? And if so, how can we find you there? I, I am on Facebook and Instagram. I've really sort of cut down my usage of them. Um, I have actually been trying to quit Facebook for a number of years um, just because of oh, lots of reasons. But um, I am on Facebook uh, as Jen Waters and I'm on Instagram just as Feisty, F-E-I-S-T-Y. 
Um, and I, I use both of those platforms mostly as a photo delivery system. <laughs> so I, I tend to post photos on Instagram that I share to Facebook, uh, mostly so that family members, colleagues, things like that, who, who aren't part of my community on Twitter will see them. I always sort of joke that I, I have Facebook and Instagram so that the in-laws can see the photos um, and, and be kept up to date with our lives because they're not on Twitter. <laughs> so what's next for a local woman? Oh, gosh. Well, something that has been a really cool side of gaining followers uh, and sort of meeting a bunch of people in and around the city is I feel like I've started some friendships um, and kind of collaborations with some, some other local women and men. So there's a couple couple little things in the works, nothing that big, but uh, the the red bubble shop that I have that has the t-shirt and mug designs and stuff. I'm working on a few new designs, um, partly based on um, insults uh, that are thrown at me at Twitter that are actually quite funny. Things like um, sanctimonious hipster or queen of drivel or two things that I was called. And I thought those look those would be great on a t-shirt. So one of the designers that I've worked with in the past, I'm working with her again. Um, and we're also working on um, a couple of designs. Redbubble has recently started selling some items for, for pets. Um, so uh, I have a dog named Dolly and she has a dog named Nelson. Um, and together we're sort of creating some, some graphic designs that kind of honor both of our dogs um, that other dog owners would be able to buy for their pets. But other than that, other than that, um, not a lot going on. The one cool thing that, that did happen a few months ago was we painted our house uh, bright colors to, to sort of mirror a, a public art structure that's in Borden Park, which is really close to our house. And so doing that has definitely given me other ideas for kind of creative and art collaborations in and around the city. Nothing, nothing that I have in the works yet, but I thought if we can paint a house, pink, blue, and green. Just think of what else we could do. <laughs> and do you have anything else you'd like to add about your, your library work and social media or just basically anything else you'd like our listeners to know? I mean, something that I have found interesting and important when it comes to having a larger follower on Twitter is that, you know, I've always had opinions about the library world, whether it's advocating for, um, low-income folks that need housing, housing supports, health supports, harm reduction. I've always sort of had those opinions, like my whole time in libraries. But when you get to a point on social media where you have a larger platform, it's sort of like, it's either that you've found a way to fit into the algorithm, so your posts are seen more widely, but it's also a little bit that people kind of listen to you a bit more. And so something that I say about you know, for example, harm reduction, how important it is. We currently have an overdose crisis in Edmonton with fentanyl and other drugs. There's so many amazing organizations that are doing great work um, that don't have enough funding, have their funding cut. I've been yelling for years about how those groups need to be supported. But all of a sudden you have 20,000 followers and you say that and people are like, oh yeah, that's, that's right. That's true. And you're like, why is my opinion different now than it was five years ago? It's really not. But so what I have realized from that is that things that I say about social issues, um, things that I say about funding supports, it's really important that I shed light on things that maybe people are not, not as aware of. Um, but it's also important that I 
I'm kind of cautious in terms of what I say, uh, because I, you know, something that you tweak as like a throwaway silly topic can be interpreted in so many different ways. Um, and so it just means that sometimes you have to put a little bit more thought into the things that you tweet. But I have really valued the fact that it seems like at certain times people are listening to me. So if I talk about groups that need support, amazing volunteer run organizations that are carrying the locks around the city and helping to reverse overdoses, like these are people that are not don't have a lot of awareness brought to them. They run on donation. If I tweet about that and tell people about it, then then maybe it'll help raise them a little bit of money. So it sounds very humble braggy when I say that, but I think it's just the fact that I understand having a platform can go a bunch of different ways. And if you want to, you can use it for sort of that platform for social issues to bring awareness to things. Um, and it can totally go the other way too. Like if I said negative things, if I, you know, called people out and started fights and all of these things that that can, that can also be brought attention to it, which you don't want. <laughs> so um, I have sort of really realized sometimes I have to be careful about things that I say. Well, thank you very much for your time, Jen, and keep, uh, keep enjoying your oatmeal. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure to speak with you today. Hey, my name is Alessa. My first recommendation for this season is the Kitchen Sisters, which is a Radiotopia podcast, um, and it's created by the award-winning radio producers and audio artists Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva. Um, this is a podcast I've listened to for years at this point, and uh, the part that I would really like to specifically recommend is their series called The Keepers. This series starts at episode 100, I believe, um, with a story called Archiving the Underground, and that's a story about the Hip Hop Archive and Research Center at Harvard University. The series chronicles stories of activists archivists and rogue librarians, curators, collectors, and historians, and in general, just protectors of the truth and free flow of information and ideas. Um, I think it's a really fun series because they use their archival audio in like really creative, inventive ways that make for really rich stories and interviews. And um, I had another recommendation. Um, it's just an episode that I listened to recently. And it's by, it's produced by the Cultural Frontline podcast created by the BBC News. And it's called Inside Norway's Future Library. And so the episode is about this art project created in 2014 by the artist Katie Patterson. And in 2014, in the Nordmarka forest outside of Oslo, 1,000 trees were planted. And these trees, once grown, will supply paper for an entire anthology of books that will be printed in 100 years' time. So in the year 2114, they'll print these books. And the way that the project is structured every year, a contemporary writer is invited to contribute a text. So then the writings are produced through this process, and then they will be held unpublished until in 100 years in 2114, they will be published into these books. Um, so, so far, participating writers have been Margaret Atwood, Han Kang, David Mitchell, and Alif Shafak. And I just thought this episode was like a really beautiful idea for an art project. And I think something that can give like many people hope for the future. And yeah, I thought people might find that of interest. That is so cool. I love that yeah. idea. Continuing 
I guess, on the theme of maybe land-based library practice, the podcast that I wanted to recommend was the Bookwomen podcast, Messina Hegan Esquewak, uh, which is the Cree translation of Bookwomen, which means librarians. And it's run by people with strong links to the U of A, Library and Information Studies program, uh, Tanya Ball runs it, and so does Kayla Larson, who's now moved on to the Waywa Library at UBC, but uh, and is fondly missed here. It's just a great podcast. Sheila LaRock is their collaborator on it, and they have just a great assortment of episodes that deal with a number of different Indigenous or Métis specifically perspectives on librarianship. Everything from zines to cooking and cultural appropriation and Indigenous futurisms and speculative fiction with the other podcast that is a go-to for me personally, Métis in Space. And all in all, it's just a really lovely podcast that I would highly recommend for anyone interested in librarianship. I don't have uh, a directly related library podcast, but I know a ton of librarians uh, listen to this. So I'm, I've decided that, that this counts. Um, my recommendation is I Don't Even Own a Television, which is just about the most relaxing podcast about bad books out there. The two hosts and the occasional guests read and discuss a book from the insane clown Posse's memoir or Steven Seagal's own fascinating attempt at fiction. Uh, that episode, by the way, is my personal favorite. Um, they basically look at all the cultural ephemera, which is either completely forgotten about, but or somehow becomes bestsellers. Uh, I've been listening to these guys for like five years now, and you can either like fall asleep to them or or listen to them going to work like whenever. Um, just like uh, like a really like wholesome like enjoyable podcast to listen to when you just need to shut your brain off a little bit. So is the purpose of reviewing bad books to warn people or to encourage them to read them as well? Uh, it depends on the book. They actually have like a little segment where they go, either you recommend this book or you uh, or you don't recommend it. Like they'll read like one book that's about how like rats uh, are like killing everyone and how that book is like really fun to like read. Or they'll like look at, I don't know, like Jordan Peterson's book and say, you really shouldn't read this book. Uh, it's just not enjoyable to look at at all. Um, I'm just so curious about the Insane Clown Posse memoir from what you're saying. Um, yeah. I just watched like the ninth Fast and the Furious movie last night. And there's so many magnets in it. And I was like, did Insane Clown Posse have something to do with this movie? <laughs> that That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Like, have you ever seen the uh, document, the short documentary, American Juggalo? It's uh, no. I, would. I highly recommend it. Is that about the dark carnival or? Yeah, or, but it is about the, the gathering of the Juggalos. I want to say it was filmed around 2013, 2014. It's just like a really nice window into this uh, subculture, I guess. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting to me that podcasts are in a place where like there's such a variety of content that there's room to discuss really bad things. I'm thinking like it reminds me of the one, what's it called? My dad wrote a porno or whatever, where yeah. you, there's room within the podcast, I don't know, ecosystem to talk about frank, like horribly written things for and it for entertainment and it like and it works. It's it's a pretty cool flexible space to be in. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, people have been looking at like bad video games, bad movies, all those things for like uh, years now, and they're always like really fascinating. Like you you know what makes up like something that's good, but it's really interesting to see something that's you know just completely messed up and messed up in like a fascinating way. Yeah, I guess there's a reason the room is so popular. 
Well, I have a recommendation. This is Paula, and I have a recommendation that uh, it's not a podcast, but uh, as someone who is uh, interested in social justice issues and has done community organizing work, I decided to spend some time over my winter break reading a book called Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good, uh, which is written and gathered by Adrienne Marie Brown. I have literally just begun reading uh, reading this. I am already riveted uh, by the depth and breadth of the of, of what is collected within here. Um, Adrienne Marie Brown describes her as a social justice facilitator focused on Black liberation, a doula healer, and a pleasure activist. So my first thought is, well, what is pleasure activism? And what I am already getting from this is that, you know, activists, we often tend to be super serious and doom and gloom about things, but uh, there is activism to be found in pleasure and happiness and our own joy. And we can make a better world by being happier people. Uh, this is coming from a politics of healing and happiness that explodes the dour myth that changing the world is just another form of work. Drawing on the Black feminist tradition, she challenges us to rethink the ground rules of activism. And I'm really looking forward to reading more of this book. And it is available at the Edmonton Public Library. Adrian maintains a pretty consistent blog as well. Uh, so this even counts for uh, online recommendations. Oh, yeah. for sure. For sure. Yeah, that's a really fascinating concept. I'll have to look into that. Thanks for tuning in. This was our final episode 2022. In the past year, we have brought you interviews from scholars and workers in the library field who discuss topics from patron perpetrated sexual harassment to archiving police violence. We hope that we have opened windows into new worlds in the same way that these windows were open to us as well as having a little fun when we are a little less serious. Next year, we will continue to bring you the latest information in library scholarship and discussion with topics ranging from library soundscapes to climate change. Happy holidays. See you next year.